Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health, and the arts. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to bridging the gap between the field of psychology, social issues, and society. Thank you for joining us. everyone welcome back to another episode of the unconventional diet podcast i know carly and i have taken a little bit of a break from the show but we are back and we are interviewing people again and so today we bring you a very important episode on a very important topic we'll be speaking to dr natalie reader about geropsychology and working with older adults Dr. Natalie Reeder is a postdoctoral psychology fellow at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center, working primarily in outpatient and inpatient geriatric care settings. She received her doctorate in psychology from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is an APA accredited program, and completed her internship at the Tuscaloosa VA Medical Center. She was awarded IUP's Graduate Research Grant Award for her dissertation investigating the relationship between family caregivers' well-being and the quantity and quality of received social support. Throughout her training, Dr. Reeder has come to appreciate the unique role of geropsychologists while working in interdisciplinary teams. Uh, Dr. Reeder on this episode talks to us about how older adults often face a variety of biopsychosocial problems, which makes the job of a geropsychologist ever-evolving and pretty interesting. She speaks about how geropsychologists must hone a diverse set of skills to address concerns faced by many older adults and their families. And Dr. Reeder is very excited to be a part of the rapidly expanding geropsychology field. And she hopes, and I hope, that many future psychologists consider this specialization. So join us for a very important conversation on geropsychology and working with older adults. Dr. Natalie Reeder, thank you so much for joining us on the Unconventional Diet Podcast. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk to you today. Um, You are our first guest in a while, um, so we're getting back into the swing of things, and we thought you'd be a perfect guest to get us back into things. Um, Why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, any parts of your personal or professional identities that you'd like to highlight? Sure. So I am a recent graduate of Indiana University of Pennsylvania up in the Pittsburgh area, um, where I got my doctorate in psychology. uh, And I graduated last year, and now I'm completing my fellowship here at the Milwaukee VA um, in geropsychology. Um, So really a big part of my professional identity is advocating for older adults, especially older veterans, um, and their families as we'll probably discuss is that families are a big part of geropsychology. And um, I've really just become a huge advocate for that population as it be- grows and grows rapidly. Um, and personal identities, I am a white uh, cis woman. And I think that really does affect kind of how I view the world. Uh, and 
I think I have a lot of privileges with that, but also comes with some challenges in working with older adults. Um, so yeah, I think geropsychology is something I have not a lot of opportunities to talk about outside the VA, so I'm very excited to be talking with you all today. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on is because there isn't a lot of conversation around geropsychology. Um, so before we kind of dive into that, do you mind maybe just giving our listeners a quick definition of what geropsychology is? Sure. So that's a psychology that is associated with older adults. So anything that's involved with their mental health functioning Um And what we like to say is probably like 65 and up, but that can range from like 60 or whatever. But as someone that like identifies as an older adult, and that usually is going to involve a lot of interventions that have to be modified due to if it's chronic uh, pain or physical ailments, cognitive impairment, um, the need for having to involve more people than one person. Um, So really, geropsychology has a lot of different things that with interventions can change because of age. And a big part of geropsychology is assessment. So um, we often are the ones that get called upon to do what we call capacity evaluations. Um, and that's to help uh, the individual to kind of assess if they're able to make their own decisions regarding their healthcare or their finances. Um, and so that's a huge part of uh, geropsychology as well. So it's a really interesting kind of intersection of kind of a diverse set of skills. Um, you're not just doing assessment or just intervention. You're really kind of called upon to do a lot of both intervention and assessment. And then another huge part of geropsychology is working within teams because of the complexity of what individuals present with. They often need just a lot of team members. You're not going to know everything that the person has going on. You're going to need the backup of medical providers, psychiatrists, um, nursing, occupational and physical therapy. Um, so it really is a big part of geropsychology is being a consultant on on teams. So in a nutshell, those three areas kind of make up what geropsychology is. Very complex and fascinating area. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, unfortunately, not a lot of people seem to go into this field. Um, so I'm really curious as to what inspired you to get into geropsychology. Maybe you can tell us about your journey. Absolutely. So I actually got um, my first interest was music therapy. So I got my first degree in music performance. Um, and I was thinking I would go into music therapy. I started dabbling in like thinking nursing or medicine. So I was trying to double major in bio and music, but then I ended up really just following the music path and thinking, oh, music therapy would be great. And once I got into the literature of music therapy, I realized that it really was a lot of focus on older adults and kind of the effect that music therapy can have. Um, And then I was really into the readings of um, Oliver Sacks, who's a neurologist. Um, He's passed away, but he had a book called Musicophilia, which really had an impact on me. It was about his kind of discovery of how music can really affect the mental health of folks with different dementias, whether that's due to Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's, and kind of how the power of music can take them back to a time that isn't affected by the dementia. Um, I thought it was so beautiful. But uh, I got more into the music therapy literature, and I really liked the person-to-person contact. I still wanted to do that. 
But I really wanted to go into something that was very established with like this geropsychology just kept popping up and it seemed just like a new field that was still kind of finding its feet at the time. Um, and it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of people going into it. And I was like, well, I like working with older adults. Like I'd grown up volunteering at nursing homes, performing music there. Um, during my undergrad, I worked in an adult daycare center. Um, and I just found that working, people that work with older adults in those settings are just the most compassionate individuals. And I just found the work so gratifying when you got to work with not only the individuals that might be affected with cognitive impairment, but also with their families and just how good you feel at the end of the day, just being able to help folks um, just in the smallest ways. Um, so after I decided to kind of shift gears and go and follow psychology, um, I kind of continued working with older adults in the daycare settings and then um, ultimately decided to go uh, make that my focus during graduate school. Because there aren't like a lot of GERO-specific um, opportunities, I kind of made my own kind of practicums and tried to, you know, make a just a... <laughs> I don't know, just combination of what I thought would be a good set of skills for a geropsychologist to have. So they varied from like being in primary care and working in warm handoffs and just with other medical providers, to working in inpatient unit with um, folks with severe mental illness, but also with a combo of cognitive impairment and how the team manages those. Um, and then I also did neuropsychology assessment for practicum, which is a great skill set to kind of have as background. And so this hodgepodge of kind of experiences really solidified my uh, desire to keep working with this population. Um, during my internship, I was able to work in a nursing home setting and also in outpatient settings. And it was really, yeah, I just continue to love it. I think there's not a day that's similar. Like every day is just like someone's coming with a different problem. The team has a different question for you. And it's always kind of just like this detective work um, with these really complicated referral questions. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, I find a lot of people that go into Jiro, it's often <laughs> you start in one place and then you totally end up somewhere that you didn't expect. Like a lot of folks and maybe start with kids and then they find like, oh, this actually is a skill set that does work really well with maybe older adults. So um, yeah, that was kind of my, my little long journey. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of the day-to-day, -day, uh, you mentioned that there's just a lot of variation in kind of what you do and what you see. I was wondering if you could give our listeners like a quick overview, um, if possible, of maybe what a day looks like for you, because I don't think a lot of people know um, what it is that geropsychologists do. And I know you touched a little bit on like capacity evals, um, but I know that there's a lot more to uh, your profession. So if you don't mind just giving us an overview. Absolutely. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to split my time at the VA between outpatient and inpatient settings. So that really is going to make my kind of role different. So in the outpatient side is kind of my first half of the day, let's say. And I work with the medical residents and their attendings, which are the psychiatrists and psychiatry residents. And they have a geropsychiatry specific clinic, which is awesome because older adults coming in with psychiatric treatment are just different than other uh, veterans coming in. And um, this usually involves getting together with the residents and the team and discussing kind of what if this is a regular follow-up, if this is a new person, and what we can offer them in terms of not beyond medication management, but like they'd be appropriate for one-on-one -on -one treatment, what modifications might we have to make for one-on-one -on -one treatment, would we have to involve their spouse or their family or whoever the caregiver is, 
Um, and also if they need other resources, uh, this could be someone that might not benefit completely from one-on-one, -on -one, but could really benefit from being involved in the senior centers or having some other daycare option available to them. And we work really closely with social work that can really knows all the resources like beyond what I know, um, just to get them more into the community and give respite to the caregivers. Um, we also have these conversations around what we call goals of care. So a lot of folks are maybe uncomfortable, even providers might be uncomfortable talking about end of life planning. And psychology can serve a really unique role of just facilitating those difficult conversations about what their values are, end of life, um, what they're hoping to accomplish before then, having the families on the same page, and then ultimately kind of deciding who they want as what we call power of attorney, um, and kind of what decisions they would want them to make um, when it comes to the end of their life. And I feel like that's a thing that I had to adjust to myself trying to have these conversations with folks. It's not easy, but um, I think psychology is just really well placed to do that. Um, so that's outpatient world. These are folks that are coming in from like nursing homes versus just living by themselves. And so if they're living by themselves, we're concerned about their safety. If they're still able to live on their own, we have people that are completely cognitively intact and they're just coming in for their meds, maybe checking in with them during their sessions just to see how they're doing, if they want any follow-up treatment. And then you have the folks coming in from like nursing homes that really are coming with their caregiver who's serving as the main reporter for problems. And um, it might be more behavioral management strategies for dementia-related uh, behaviors. Um, so really, it's just so many like different uh, presenting concerns. I think you know, we are concerned, number one, about their safety. And so we want to make sure that we assess if they're still driving, if they're still doing that safely, if they're still taking their medications correctly. And if we do have concerns or if other providers have had concerns about their functioning independently, we can perform a capacity evaluation with their consent and um, then that can we can plan from there. Um, Oftentimes, if the person has changes in their cognition, we have those tough conversations about maybe you need more neuropsychological testing, let's try to facilitate you getting further testing down the road, and how that could really affect treatment. Um, probably not surprisingly, a lot of folks don't want to sit through three to four hours of neuropsychological testing. Um, but I think when we give them kind of the reasoning behind why this would be beneficial for them in this team atmosphere, it really lessens that kind of burden on them. And we kind of try to facilitate that as much as we can. Um, I also think because in outpatient world, we are in a team setting, it really lessens this kind of stigmatization that I feel like the older generation has with mental health. Um, and so we're all there at the same time. So we try to really schedule it when they see their physician, come to see psychiatry, your therapist will be there at the same time. It really just like makes it very easy within the VA system, at least that's how we try to do it. Um, and so I've seen more and more that veterans are becoming comfortable. Older veterans are just more comfortable talking about uh, their mental health. Um, I also uh, lead what we have the Healthy Aging Group at the VA, and that's really for veterans that are having difficulty with adjusting to just age-related issues, whether that's grief or the loss of their functional abilities, um, noticing changes in their cognitive functioning, or um, you know, planning their advanced directives, all these things that come up in later stages that maybe they're not able to talk about in other, um, with other providers or with other folks in their life. Um, and so that group's been really helpful, I think, to just facilitate those conversations um, and trying to, you know, make them feel like they can advocate for their, their care. 
So outpatient world, lots of warm handoffs, lots of consultation, lots of groups and one-on-one. And um, each one is so different. I think with COVID too, we had to modify our just treatment approach with using video-based technology and phone therapy. And that presented its own challenges, especially with older veterans who, you know, didn't have to use this before. And I have to say they were very adaptive in, you know, just quickly going over to to the phone or video and how they set it up. And it was just like, I was very impressed with how seamless it seemed. Um, So that was just an experience in itself. And then on the inpatient side of things, you're going to see more team meetings. So where we talk about the patients on the unit right now, if the nursing staff or other providers are having any difficulties with them, if they're noticing any changes in their mental health or cognitive functioning, we're going to be the person to kind of come in and first assess their mental health and any psychosocial stressors. Um, And then if cognitive uh, functioning is something that they're concerned about, we're also the ones that are going to be completing that testing as well beyond kind of your general cognitive screener like a MOCA, we could be doing kind of a briefer gyro battery that isn't neuro and it's not diagnostic. It's just showing that there's some impairment and nothing too burdensome to the patient because it all has to kind of be completed within the hospital setting. And then really talking and getting comfortable with the staff, I feel like is a huge component of inpatient work with gyro psychology. Like you have to be able to work with different dynamics on teams, being able to facilitate difficult conversations around veterans' care. And that's been a huge growth area, I feel like, for myself during fellowship is just trying to learn communication strategies on how to how to talk to team members that might not be seeing eye to eye on things. We also have what we call the reminiscence group on the inpatient unit, which is a really great um, therapy approach for folks with a cognitive impairment. Um, that they can reflect on earlier days in their life and think back on their accomplishments and their just childhood memories that they have probably haven't thought of too often. And it's amazing that even though I don't completely understand all the time where they're at, they each other can share stories about their military time, that shared experience that they all had. And um, it's really awesome because you can just, they've told us like, oh, this is my favorite part of the week. And that's been really gratifying as well. Something so simple, but like it just it brings the unit together in a, in a wonderful way. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of intervention on inpatient too, but it's a lot of assessment, I would say. Family meetings, you're going to be kind of part of that team approach if they're having difficulty deciding on what their discharge plan is, if they do need a higher level of care, is the family able to provide that care? So I feel like as I'm talking, I, there's like a laundry list of like things we're doing. <laughs> And it's just a lot, and it's so hard to encapsulate, like, one day. Like, it's it could be a lot of things. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit more about the Reminiscence group? I know that I'm really interested in group, and I, I read some group literature, and that is one type of group that very rarely gets discussed. And I'm always wondering about why, because it seems so effective, especially for older adults, and... Can you just speak a little bit to what that group is and really how it affects some of the veterans that you work with? Absolutely. So we have different approaches for reminiscence group. I started doing reminiscence groups back when I was in the adult daycare center, and I loved it. We What we would 
the, the theory behind it is that thinking back on these times when they weren't impaired, I mean, these are memories that they're going to have, like those remote memories stay for the longest, but, you know, even when they have dementia. And so they're able to recall these like good feelings and that just makes them calmer, easier going, and they can all kind of share that with each other. And you can have, there's multiple activities that you can do with reminiscence groups that I found to be really effective. So the first I started with was kind of showing pictures of historical events that they've all experienced as a cohort, um, whether that's um, MLK's speech or um, watching the Flintstones on TV or watching James Bond, like just having kind of trivia of like, do you recognize who this is? And they'll be able to kind of recall like, oh yeah, I saw that in the movie theater. And then you're able to kind of gather more information about what they remember. And then this other person would have maybe similar memories to you and they just can talk about something because I feel like you get they can feel so isolated just having this impairment, um, but just having this bridge of communication of these shared experiences is so help, like powerful. Um, we also have questions that we prompt them with. Um, so a lot of them have to do with when you were growing up as a kid, what were kind of the trends that you remember, or if you have achievement that you want to talk about, tell us about that. And oftentimes this will bring up conversations around family or their jobs or their military experience. And um, it's all very kind of just, it's wonderful how this brings it together because they all have these kind of similar achievements, even if they come from like such diverse backgrounds. I mean, people that just do not share <laughs> the same kind of, uh, what, if you looked at them, you'd assume like they probably didn't have too many shared experiences. But um, really, there's these just common themes of just like when I felt accomplished during my adolescence is when I graduated from high school or like when I met my wife and they're counting kind of those stories. And um, I'll never forget like one of my first reminiscence groups, I would always have a question about like, how did you meet like someone important in your life. And uh, I had one lady that would always tell us a story about how she met her husband on the train going to work. And he like sat down next to her. And there was another woman that had Alzheimer's disease. And she would always react the same way of like, oh my gosh, that is the cutest story. And it was so cute because they wouldn't obviously remember that previous kind of telling. And it was just always so warm. And it was the same reaction, like every group it just like made me smile because you could just they saw that same shared feeling kind of every week <laughs> because of the group. Um, so even though it might not seem like a lot of legwork to us as being kind of the therapist, it really is, I think, so effective for folks that have dementia or any other cognitive impairment because it allows them to communicate and just realize I'm not alone in this. Like we can still connect in a feeling in this moment. Um, but music can be a part of it too. Like we've sometimes brought in I mean, it's awesome. I love bringing music in, obviously, but um, just like, what was the number one song in 1961? And we get to play it and they start singing along with it and they're just having a good, good time and they really don't get that much opportunity to just do things together on the unit or in like the daycare center either. So um, yeah, I just, anything that you can really try to um, arouse memories from the past, I think is just like, that's going to be an important part of reminiscence therapy. And that's a big component of kind of what I talk about with families, too. Um, this is an activity that, you know, therapists don't have to do. It can be just family members of, like, taking out an album and not so much saying, like, do you remember this? But more just telling them, like, this was your birthday and we did this and just allowing them to kind of gather what they can of that event, um, I think, can just bring people together still, even if they're at home and they don't feel like they know what's going on. They can still kind of reflect back on those previous memories. 
So yeah, it can be an assortment of things, but I tend to kind of use pictures, sounds, and kind of verbal prompting just to keep it kind of lively. But they'll just actually just keep talking like on their own. Like if they have a story they want to tell, they'll tell it. And I'm not going to, you know, interrupt that. I think it's more <laughs> helpful to them to share their stories and then have other people want to share their stories from that. So it's a really wonderful kind of way to um, facilitate more positive feelings and what can be a very isolative world for them. Yeah, and I think the social connection at that stage in life is just so important because I've been reading so many articles about how isolation and loneliness in older adults is like a rampant epidemic. Um, yes. So that's really awesome that actually you talking about the reminiscence groups definitely brought a smile to my face. Like I can almost feel the second secondhand good feelings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, you did mention earlier um, that you kind of had to create your own grad school program around geropsychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the case in a lot of uh, schools. There isn't... Um, there isn't a lot of grad school training on geropsychology and psychology programs. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or why that might be, what your experience was like with that lack of training? Yes, this is an area I've given a lot of thought to, having to go through the process. I feel like they want to put, like going through training and saying you want geropsychology, if they're not ready for that focus for whatever reason, the program's not set up for that then they try to put you in the box of either neuropsychology or like primary care um, or just something kind of else where older people are. And it's not that. And it really, I think, hinders kind of what curriculum could be happening in grad programs. There are a few programs that have a geropsychology track, and I think that's awesome. I think I wish more programs had that. My program did not. And so I was kind of left with doing this kind of neuro-ish track, which didn't really help me because I feel like neuropsychology is significantly different, even though there is plenty of overlap, it's definitely its own field. Um, And so why that is, I really don't know. I feel like everyone's just starting to realize like, oh my gosh, the older adult population is growing at a rapid rate and we won't be able to keep up with the care that these folks are going to demand. And I think it's just probably not a hot area just because we think of like the stigmatization of age just in our culture is just not something people like talking about. It's not something we like to watch on TV as people aging, you know, it's always, I've noticed just in the shows I've watched that like older adults means dementia. And it's like, that's not what normal aging is. And so I think it just gets a really bad rap and it's unfortunate because it's such a rich uh, field And I think programs are hopefully starting to see the need to really make it a focus. I mean, I had a psychology of aging course in undergrad, and that was enough for me to be like, oh my gosh, right, there's an aging population that no one's considering and everyone's focused on like child and adult. And those are obviously very important fields, but older adults just like are going to be taking over very soon. And we don't have the providers that feel like they have the competency to really work with them. Although I am encouraged that a lot of providers are still going to be taking on older patients and modifying their therapies. I think that's just going to be a needed skill set in the future. But um, I just don't think it's a hot thing to do. I I just think aging is just something that people don't like talking about. And it's unfortunate because I really think it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we see in other 
cultures and other countries where aging is just not as stigmatized and people don't care that much if they're getting older. They know it's just a number and they have a lot of control over how they're aging. Um, and here it's just like they're a separate category completely. And you can see that in some of the people that we treat, it just becomes part of their identity. It's like, I'm an old person now and I can't do these things. And I think in part it's because of what our culture is telling them they can and cannot do because of their age. Um, so I do hope, you know, in my career that we're able to see this growth in this area because I just feel like it's the research is growing really quickly. I mean, we know that caregivers are very important people in older adults' lives that we just don't know how best to serve them sometimes. And older veterans and older just people in general are going to be seeking out mental health services. The more that less stigma um, that declines, the more that they're going to be seeking it out. And I just really hope we're able to uh, handle that. I think a big area is family caregiving. And we already are seeing now kind of what we call the panini generation of these people that are taking care of their parents in addition to their kids. And that's going to be the reality for a lot of folks and a lot of cultures that's already happening. And that's a normal part of it. But then for people that aren't prepared for that, like, it's very hard to decide like what to focus on, sacrificing career uh, trajectories. Um, and I think if we just kind of accepted that like older adults would really benefit from just staying in their homes, how can we kind of modify our living situation to facilitate that really helps. But I just don't think people want to talk about it. Um, I feel like so many people are going to nursing homes and we can't keep up with the volume of that can't just be the option that we go to. Um, and one thing I've learned in fellowship is that there are so many different care levels within before going to a nursing home. I think my own kind of idea of like, you're either at home independent or you're in a 24 seven nursing facility. And there is a lot of options in between. You have senior living communities or assisted living. Um, you have your home-based kind of option, at least through the VA primary care that comes to your home if you're not able to come by yourself or you don't have the transportation. You have health, home health that can have nurses coming in and checking on your vitals, making sure your meds are in place. And there's a lot of things in between. I think that really should be kind of what we focus on with older adults is that they are capable to remain safe and independent for a longer period if we kind of help and use team approaches for that. But to get back to your question, I just hope that more and more people start to see older ad adults in their clinics and they see like, oh, we have to learn how to treat these people. And um, and I do hope it grows as quickly as the population's growing right now. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate kind of the state of training. I think it really can be embedded in training programs a bit better. And there are programs out there that we could base it on just to develop curriculum around that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I um, This is actually an area of interest of mine. Like it's something I want to go into for sure. And I'm always disheartened when I see just like the gaps in training. Um, yeah, it just makes me really sad. But I, I agree with you. I think people are catching on, um, definitely. Um, I guess I'm wondering what you would say to someone who is maybe interested in this field or who is toying with the idea. Is there anything that you would, you'd want them to know or any advice you'd give? Yes. I would wonder kind of what 
they're anticipating their role would look like. I know I certainly didn't have a good idea of what a geropsychologist did until fellowship. And I think I had an idea in my head of like, oh, I'll do a lot of assessment and I'll do some brief therapy like I did in my practicums in primary care and neuropsychology, but it's not that. So I really would like to gauge kind of what they're thinking is going to be their job and then trying to provide education around, actually, this is what your job would entail if you're going into this branch of geropsychology. I mean, we have at the VA palliative care in addition to inpatient and outpatient, and these all require different skill sets with some overlap. Um, so really trying to provide information on what geropsychology actually is, is really important and what the role of a geropsychologist is on uh, in an interdisciplinary team. And to get more people into it, I really tried to sell it as like, it's if you love neuropsychology and love assessment and enjoy that kind of aspect of gathering data and trying to be kind of a detective and figuring out what is going on with this person, figuring out the etiology, but you also really enjoy that one-to-one or group therapy with someone and making that connection and working with them over a period of time. This is a really great combination of those. These are people that you're going to not just assess them, write your report up, give feedback, and provide them with resources as someone that you could potentially work with based on kind of what you've found. Um, and that's what drew me to it because I didn't want to do neuropsych because I knew I didn't want to, you know, write reports and that was the only thing I did and give feedback and I never see you again. Maybe I'll see you down the road when we do a reval. But like I wanted definitely to have some one-on-one quality kind of working with others. I just enjoyed that so much. And I think recognizing that there's still so much variety of referral questions with older adults. Um, I think people really think it's all about, they're just asking questions about like, oh, I don't want to grow old and like I'm having a hard time adjusting. It's so much more than that. And actually that really offers a very rich area of exploration because they could be dealing with just like creating a new identity for themselves um, after a loss or just trying to figure out their own footing after retirement. And they've never done that before, or they're having struggles with their family. I mean, the referrals are just so interesting and I find them so much more meaningful uh, compared just like comparatively to like my other experiences with other populations I was like wow I would not have thought about that if you hadn't come up with that question Um, which kind of reminds me I think that was one thing too as a trainee that I would pass on is that people as a trainee older adults might judge you a little bit being a younger provider like well you didn't live my experience so I can't really talk to you about that and I think I've developed kind of my own way to say like, no, I haven't developed, I have not experienced that yet. And, but I have worked with a lot of people that have come across this similar issue and I can offer kind of guidance based on their experiences. But I think that was the biggest challenge of sort of trying to sell my skill set as a younger person, because I can understand that completely as an older adult, like, you know, like you don't understand, like, what do you know? Um, and so I think recognizing that you are going to be kind of the younger person, they might you might have to do a little bit more work in selling your skills, um, but you will develop your own way of trying to show them that you have this skill set to offer, that you can offer them. And once you do that, I've had really great success with folks that started out like I'd rather have someone that's my age and my sex, and I'm like, okay, like we can't do that. So <laughs> how can we work together here to really? Um, you know, help you out. And ultimately they realize like, oh, those factors aren't that important in getting the mental health services that I want. Um, And so really I think trainees should know that there is such 
great work to be done in geropsychology, and you can really pick and choose what areas you love. If you love capacity evaluations, that can be the area that you go into. If you love death and dying, that can be the area you go into with palliative care or hospice. Um, if you love working with families, there's something for you there too. If you love working on teens, there's something for you there too. I mean, it's just like so much variety and it's endless. Like it's just going to be keep growing for our careers. So um, I don't know. I just really try to sell it as like, if you want an interesting career and it is, I think APA said it's an ironclad <laughs> uh, job market for geropsychologists because they just recognize that this is the biggest need right now. So if you love neuro and you love assessment, but you also love just working with folks on a more intimate level, then geropsychology just really offers a lot of meaningful work um, to psychology trainees and future psychologists. That's wonderful. I think you're doing a great job selling it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I guess I'm also wondering too, just if you could say one thing to the general public about older adults, what would you want them to know about the older adult population? Because like you alluded to earlier, there's just so much uh, stigma around aging and there's so many stereotypes out there. And I don't think people really understand the older adult population very much, partly because they're kind of being shooed away into nursing homes and they're not as much a part of the conversation as they are in other countries like Japan, for example. Um, so if there was one thing that you could say to the general public about older adults, what would that be? I would say don't assume they're as limited as you think they are. I think people often overgeneralize physical limitations with cognitive limitations or vice versa, and then they really will limit their loved ones and what they're able to do um, with them. And if they're not doing it directly, they're doing it indirectly, and that person takes it on as, I guess I'm not able to do this hobby that I've loved doing for years. Um, so recognizing that older adults are still very adaptive, like they are able to recognize the limitations and still practice the things that they love doing. Um, the, the content might change a little bit, but the quality of the, whatever the process of that activity doesn't change. Um, I really wish that people like this is often the work we do with families is kind of being like, okay, yeah, he can't do that one thing that maybe he used to do all the time. And it's not going to look the same, but what changes can we make? And it can be a huge challenge because this is something that they've done for years and years, their whole lives. And I'm asking you to do this activity differently. Um, or just recognizing that maybe they can't, they aren't able to do that, but then let's try to reorganize and think of another way that we can do it. They're not completely closed off. So really, I just wish people knew that older adults are resilient and they're much more adaptive than we gave them, like I myself before COVID, <laughs> gave them credit for. Um, they're just still very able to learn new things. And um, I think just being open to kind of what they're, they're wanting to experience in this stage in their life um, is something that we should use as guideposts rather than trying to place um, limitations on them ourselves. Um, really just trying to encourage them to live according to their values. I mean, so much of the work that I do is act-based, um, acceptance and commitment-based, um, just recognizing that just because they're older, that they're still able to do all these things that they've they've done their whole lives it just looks a little bit different um so yeah I think it's unfortunate and like you said like other cultures don't have that they're like yep you're a part of this unit until you die and that's just not the way it is here there's definitely just more stag like just a distinct stage that I think does not benefit them in the long run you really, really sorry oh, no go ahead Natalie 
I was going to say in my healthy aging group, you can see that kind of dichotomy of like, you see some of the veterans that like maybe view themselves as very limited, but then you have these other veterans are like, oh, I'm still doing this activity. I, you know, walk all the time. I make sure I go to the grocery store just to say hi to people. And then it's like inspires other veterans to then be like, oh, like, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself sort of, you know, with in their limitations. But I think, you know, groups can be pretty powerful for that reason if they're able to socialize and recognize like, oh, other people are able to do it and just show them that like, just because maybe my family members or other people in my life are saying I can't, um, it can be really inspiring, I think, to just hear other people their age doing things that maybe they thought they couldn't do anymore. I know that we are a little bit short on time, but I'm wondering if you can speak to the unique challenges that arise when you're working specifically with the veteran population and maybe um, compared with a, a different setting. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about some of the challenges that you experience working with that specific population. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so veterans have their own unique culture from the military that I will never fully understand. Um, during my internship, I was fortunate to kind of learn about just the different branches, but also the different war eras, because each of the war eras present with different, not like we're all going to put them in different categories, but they do kind of present with different problems. Uh, the majority of the veterans I work with are Vietnam veterans. And so that has its own kind of problem of not being, you know, people were supportive of that war, coming back to people that weren't appreciative of their time in service, and they carry a lot of trauma-related uh, distress. And that's going to carry over sometimes into older adulthood because they just didn't recognize it. They didn't want to treat it. Um, and that does pop up a lot more when we're older and we don't have, we have time now to kind of reflect on our earlier experiences. And so Vietnam veterans are kind of the bulk of the older adult population right now that I'm seeing that I think are just kind of recognizing some of them that mental health is very important and it's really going to keep affecting you until you kind of start to process it. But we also have kind of World War II veterans sometimes pop up with, you know, they certainly they're old, old now, they're in late 90s, but they're still coming in and some of them are just very much uh, cognitively intact and others, you know, are aging rapidly. Um, we also have the Korean War veterans that are also older, old, but um, also they just all have different, I guess, explore experiences, combat experiences. And if they weren't in the combat, they definitely had experiences while they were just in serving. And I think most I learned is just from the veterans themselves. I don't try to assume too much about what they experienced just because they were a veteran during that war period or that era. Um, and really trying to see what their distress is coming from now. I think a lot of the times People want to assume like, oh, it's PTSD related, but a lot of times it could be something earlier than that from before their time in the military. Um, and so just recognizing that you probably won't fully understand the military culture. It's so different from civilian culture. And your focus is going to be more on trying to help bridge that gap between maybe what they experience in the military and trying to still adjust back into civilian life. Um, and I think it's such a unique population of older veterans. They are so appreciative of the work you do with them. And sometimes it's the first time they're seeking out mental health services is with you. And um, it is so gratifying to be able to kind of treat these maybe problems they've had their whole lives and maybe even made it part of their identity and seeing that they're able to kind of grow from the experiences rather than just keeping it in. Um, so yes, working with them one-on-one -on -one and in groups, I think I've learned the most about just how each era is different. And I'll continue to learn like with these different eras coming through, Vietnam will age out and then I'll have the next group coming in and they'll have their own kind of set of 
of distress or stressors. And um, yeah, I'm excited to kind of see how they change. I haven't really been able to see that yet. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answered the question completely, but I feel like every era is very different. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can speak also about maybe some of your plans for the future for your career um, and any hopes that you have for the future. Yeah. So my career plans, so I'm going off to St. Louis for doing general outpatient, but I know that a lot of the veterans I'll be treating in general outpatient will be Jero of, of the Jero population. So you'll never be, there's never going to not be a Jero patients if you're in general outpatient or not. Um, and I do hope to go into more of a specialized clinic where it's um, the VA at least has Jerry Pack, which is kind of what I'm in right now with the Jero Psychiatry Clinic of having serving on a team within kind of a more primary care setting. Um, and then I also hope to just get more involved with the APA's uh, division with Jero Psychology and um, other organizations that advocate for the aging population and their families. Um, and I also have a, you know, passion for caregivers. Um, my mom was a caregiver for a really long time, and I've just found her work really inspirational. And I think that's a population that doesn't get a lot of attention, and we're having a hard time trying to see how we can best serve them. So being an advocate for family caregivers is something I also hope to continue to do. And what my message would be to others is just um, consider geropsychology. You're going to probably be working for geropsychologist in the future. It's going to be someone that's probably going to be part of your team. And I think it's a great thing because these are sometimes people that don't even know psychology is on the team. This is their first time having any contact with mental health providers when someone's aging in their family. Um, so I think just being able to speak to what geropsychology can offer. And I hope that people feel comfortable just kind of reaching out to the geropsychology community um, and seeing kind of what opportunities are out there. Because I think I only touched on a few areas, but there are so many other areas that um, to explore. So I just hope people get excited about geropsych because I think it's just a really awesome field with really awesome people in it right now. One more question for you. Sure. Um, we like to ask this question of um, almost all of our guests, uh, but we're just wondering if you can share um, something that you learned maybe over this past year, over the COVID-19 pandemic, just a lesson that you've taken away with you. Yes, I've learned that people can be really flexible. I think just in my work with patients, I think as trainees, we often worry about like, oh my gosh, did I do enough during that session? Like, are they going to be okay? Like recognizing that despite the pandemic and everything going on in the world that people can still adapt, especially older adults and remain flexible in kind of how you're approaching problems um, has been a big takeaway for me. Same thing with teams. Like if we are trying to attack a problem from all sides, I think just remaining open and curious is so important to the role of a psychologist. I think oftentimes we're the ones that have to remain curious on teams <laughs> just because everyone's coming with their own lens and we are in the position of trying to try to figure out how we can help or what's going on. So really I think that's the big takeaway. It's just like, I feel like I'm so much more flexible. I usually am an easygoing person, but I feel like just with COVID and everything going on, like you just had to become more and more flexible um, with the changes. and our veterans and patients are flexible humans as well. And so 
it's been awesome to kind of see that experience. And I think it really, this pressure that might have developed during grad school, like doing everything right all the time, but just recognizing like there are multiple ways to do things. You might make mistakes. We're all adapting and just important to remain flexible in a lot of these situations and just trust your um, clinical judgment and a lot of things. So um, that I think was a really big lesson I've learned during fellowship. And I encourage a lot of folks to do fellowship because you're going to grow so quickly professionally um, and you'll kind of figure out your own style of doing things. So um, it's been really helpful and just figuring out how I handle just tough situations and um, what I can bring to the table. So yeah, that I think would be the word I would use to describe the big lesson. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners or any way that people can get in contact with you? I don't know if you're on social media or anything like that. I'm not huge on social media, but I am on LinkedIn. So if they wanted to reach out to me on that, I'm happy to do that. Um, my name it's just Natalie Reader. I'm pretty sure that's what it does on LinkedIn. Um, but really just try to get involved in all the geropsychology, APA, Division 12, um, COGTIP is another organization, Alzheimer's Association. Like there's endless amounts of groups that people can get involved in. I just encourage you to just explore that option. And if you wrote off geropsychology or aging, just consider it. Think about just like what it is beyond kind of what our culture says it is. And um, really aging is such a diverse experience. And um, I think as a psychologist, it's just, you know, just remaining curious about all these different experiences. You're never going to run out of things to work on as a professional. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you do. It is so important and so appreciated, I'm sure, for many people. Um, And yeah, thank you for joining us today. It was wonderful speaking with you. Of course, I enjoyed it myself. Thank you so much.